Chapter Seven of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt, by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Seven, Part One. He solemnly finished the last copy of the American Magazine while his wife sighed, laid away her darning, and looked enviously at the lingerie designs in a woman's magazine. The room was very still. It was a room which observed the best floral height standards. The gray walls were divided into artificial paneling by strips of white enameled pine. From the Babbitt's former house had come too much carved rocking chairs. But the other chairs were new, very deep and restful, upholstered in blue and gold-striped velvet. A blue velvet davenport faced the fireplace, and behind it was a cherry-wood table and a tall piano lamp with a shade of golden silk. Two out of every three houses in Floral Heights had before the fireplace a davenport, a mahogany table, real or imitation, and a piano lamp or reading lamp with a shade of yellow or rose silk. On the table was a runner of gold-threaded Chinese fabric, four magazines, a silver box containing cigarette crumbs, and three gift books, large, expensive editions of fairy tales illustrated by English artists, and as yet unread by any Babbitt save Tinka. In a corner by the front windows was a large cabinet Victrola. Eight out of every nine Floral Heights houses had a cabinet phonograph. Among the pictures, hung in the exact center of each gray panel, were a red and black imitation English hunting print, an anemic imitation boudoir print, with a French caption of whose morality Babbitt had always been rather suspicious, and a hand-colored photograph of a colonial room rag-rug, maiden spinning, cat demure before a white fireplace. Nineteen out of every twenty houses in Floral Heights had either a hunting print, a Madame Fête la Toilette print, a colored photograph of a New England house, a photograph of a Rocky Mountain, or all four. It was a room as superior in comfort to the parlor of Babbitt's boyhood as his motor was superior to his father's buggy. Though there was nothing in the room that was interesting, there was nothing that was offensive. It was as neat and as negative as a block of artificial ice. The fireplace was unsoftened by downy ashes or sooty brick. The brass fire irons were of immaculate polish, and the grenadier andirons were like samples in a shop, desolate, unwanted, lifeless things of commerce. Against the wall was a piano, with another piano lamp, but no one used it save Tinka. The hard briskness of the phonograph contented them. Their store of jazz records made them feel wealthy and cultured, and all they knew of creating music was the nice adjustment of a bamboo needle. The books on the table were unspotted and laid in rigid parallels. Not one corner of the carpet rug was curled, and nowhere was there a hockey stick, a torn picture book, an old cap, or a gregarious and disorganizing dog. 2. At home, Babbitt never read with absorption. He was concentrated enough at the office, but here he crossed his legs and fidgeted. When his story was interesting, he read the best. That was the funniest paragraphs to his wife. When it did not hold him, he coughed, scratched his ankles and his right ear, thrust his left thumb into his vest pocket, jingled his silver, whirled the cigar-cutter and keys on one end of his watch-chain, yawned, rubbed his nose, and found errands to do. 
He went upstairs to put on his slippers, his elegant slippers of seal brown, shaped like medieval shoes. He brought up an apple from the barrel, which stood by the trunk closet in the basement. Apple day keeps the doctor away, he enlightened Mrs. Babbitt, for quite the first time in fourteen hours. That's so. An apple is nature's best regulator. Yes, it. Trouble with women is they never have sense enough to form regular habits. Why? Always nibbling and eating between meals. George! She looked up from her reading. Did you have a light lunch today? Like you were going to? I did. This malicious and unprovoked attack astounded him. Well, maybe it wasn't light as went to lunch with Paul and didn't have much chance to diet. Oh, you needn't grin like a chessy cat. If it wasn't for me watching out and keeping an eye on our diet, I'm the only member of this family that appreciates the value of oatmeal for breakfast. I... She stooped over her story while he piously sliced and gulped down the apple, discoursing. One thing I've done, cut down my smoking. Had kind of a run-in with Graf in the office. He's getting too darn fresh. I'll stand for a good deal, but once in a while... I got to assert my authority, and I jumped him. Stan, I said, well, I told him just exactly where to get off. Funny kind of day. Makes me feel restless. Well, um, the sleepiest sound in the world, the terminal yawn. Mrs. Babbitt yawned with it, and looked graceful as he droned. How about going to bed, eh? Don't suppose Roan and Ted will be in till all hours. Yep, funny kind of day. Not terribly warm, but yet... Gosh, I'd like someday I'm going to take a long motor trip. Yes, we'd enjoy that, she yawned. He looked away from her as he realized that he did not wish to have her go with him. As he locked the doors and tried the windows and set the heat regulator so that the furnace drafts would open automatically in the morning, he sighed a little heavily with the lonely feeling which perplexed and frightened him. So absent-minded was he that he could not remember which window catches he had inspected, and through the darkness, fumbling at unseen perilous chairs, he crept back to try them all over again. His feet were loud on the steps as he clumped upstairs at the end of his great and treacherous day of veiled rebellions. 3. Before breakfast he always reverted to upstate village boyhood, and shrank from the complex urban demands of shaving, bathing, deciding whether the current shirt was clean enough for another day. Whenever he stayed home in the evening, he went to bed early, and thriftily got ahead in those dismal duties. It was his luxurious custom to shave while sitting snugly in a tub full of hot water. He may be viewed tonight as a plump, smooth, pink, baldish, podgy, good man, robbed of the importance of spectacles, squatting in breast-high water, scraping his lather-smeared cheeks with a safety-razor like a tiny lawnmower, and with melancholy dignity, clawing through the water to recover a slippery and active piece of soap. He was lulled to dreaming by the caressing warmth. The light fell on the inner surface of the tub in a pattern of delicate wrinkled lines which slipped with a green sparkle over the curving porcelain as the clear water trembled. Babbitt lazily watched it noted that along the silhouette of his legs against the radiance on the bottom of the tub, the shadows of air-bubbles clinging to the hairs were reproduced as strange jungle-mosses. He patted the water, and reflected light capsized and leaped and volleyed. He was content and childish. He played, 
he shaved a swath down the calf of one plump leg. The drain-pipe was dripping a dulcet and lively song. Drippity-drip, dribble, drippity-drip, drip. He was enchanted by it. He looked at the solid tub, the beautiful nickel tabs, the tiled walls of the room, and felt virtuous in the possession of this splendor. He roused himself and spoke gruffly to his bath things. Come here. You've done enough fooling. He reproved the treacherous soap and defied the scratchy nail-brush with, Oh, you would, would you? He soaped himself and rinsed himself and austerely rubbed himself. He noted a hole in the Turkish towel and meditatively thrust a finger through it and marched back to the bedroom, a grave and unbending citizen. There was a moment of gorgeous abandon, a flash of melodrama such as he found in traffic driving when he laid out a clean collar, discovered that it was frayed in front, and tore it up with magnificent ying sound. Most important of all was the preparation of his bed and the sleeping porch. It is not known whether he enjoyed his sleeping porch because of the fresh air or because it was the standard thing to have a sleeping porch. Just as he was an elk, a booster, and a member of the Chamber of Commerce, just as the priests of the Presbyterian Church determined his every religious belief, and the senators who controlled the Republican Party decided in little smoky rooms in Washington what he should think about disarmament, tariff, and Germany, so did the large national advertisers fix the surface of his life, fixed what he believed to be individuality. These standard advertised wares, toothpastes, socks, tires, cameras, instantaneous hot-water heaters were his symbols and proofs of excellence at first the signs then the substitutes for joy and passion and wisdom but none of these advertised tokens of financial and social success was more significant than a sleeping porch with a sun parlor below the rites of preparing for bed were elaborate and unchanging the blankets had to be tucked in at the foot of his cot also, the reason why the maid hadn't tucked in the blankets had to be discussed with Mrs. Babbitt. The rag rug was adjusted so that his bare feet would strike it when he arose in the morning. The alarm clock was wound, the hot water bottle was filled, and placed precisely two feet from the bottom of the cot. These tremendous undertakings yielded to his determination. One by one they were announced to Mrs. Babbitt, and smashed through to accomplishment. At last his brow cleared, and in his night rang virile power. But there was yet need of courage. As he sank into sleep, just at the first exquisite relaxation, the Doppelro car came home. He bounced into wakefulness, lamenting, Why the devil can't some people never get to bed at a reasonable hour? So familiar was he with the process of putting up his own car that he awaited each step like an able executioner condemned to his own rack, the car insultingly cheerful in the driveway. The car door opened and banged shut. Then garage door slid open, grating on the sill, and the car door again. The motor raced for the climb up into the garage and raced once more, explosively, before it was shut off. A final opening and slamming of the car door, silence, then a horrible silence filled with waiting, till the leisurely Mr. Dopperloo had examined the state of his tires and had at last shut the garage door. Instantly, for Babbitt, 
a blessed state of oblivion. 4. At that moment, in the city of Zenith, Horace Updike was making love to Lucille McCleverly in their mauve drawing-room on Royal Ridge. After the return from a lecture by the eminent English novelist Updike was Zenith's professional bachelor, a slim-waisted man of forty-six, with an effeminate voice in taste in flowers, cretones, and flappers. Mrs. McEvely was red-haired, creamy, discontented, exquisite, rude, and honest. Updike tried his invariable first maneuver, touching her nervous wrist. "'Don't be an idiot,' she said. "'Do you mind awfully?' "'No.' "'That's what I mind.' He changed to conversation. He was famous at conversation. He spoke reasonably of psychoanalysis, Long Island Poto, and the Ming platter he had found in Vancouver. She promised to meet him in Deerville the coming summer, though she sighed, "'Becoming too dreadfully banal, nothing but Americans and frowsy English baronesses.' And at that moment in Zenith, a cocaine-runner and a prostitute were drinking cocktails in Healy Hansen's saloon on Front Street. Since national prohibition was now in force, and since Zenith was notoriously law-abiding, they were compelled to keep cocktails innocent by drinking them out of teacups. The lady threw her cup at the cocaine-runner's head. He worked his revolver out of the pocket in his sleeve and casually murdered her. At that moment in Zenith, two men sat in a laboratory. For thirty-seven hours now they had been working on a report of their investigations of synthetic rubber. At that moment in Zenith, there was a conference of four union officials as to whether the twelve thousand coal miners within a hundred miles of the city should strike. Of these men, one resembled a testy and prosperous grocer, one a Yankee carpenter, one a soda jerk, and one a Russian Jewish actor. The Russian Jew quoted Kosky, Gene Debs, and Abraham Lincoln. At that moment, a G.A.R. veteran was dying. He had come from the Civil War straight to a farm which, though it was officially within the city limits of Zenith, was primitive as the backwoods. He had never ridden in a motor-car, never seen a bathtub, never read any book save the Bible, McGuffey's readers, and religious tracts, and he believed that the earth is flat, that the English are the lost ten tribes of Israel, and that the United States is a democracy. At that moment, the steel and cement town which composed the factory of the Pullmore Tractor Company of Zenith was running on night shift to fill an order of tractors for the Polish army. It hummed like a million bees, glared through its wide windows like a volcano. Along the high wire fences, searchlights played on the cinder line yard, switch tracks and armed guards on patrol. At that moment, Mike Mundy was finishing a meeting, Mr. Mundy, the distinguished evangelist, the best known Protestant pontiff in America had once been a prize-fighter. Satan had not dealt justly with him. As a prize-fighter, he gained nothing but his crooked nose, his celebrated vocabulary, and his stage presence. The service of the Lord had been more profitable. He was about to retire with a fortune. It had been well-earned, for, to quote his last report, Reverend Mr. Mundy, the prophet with a punch, has shown that he is the world's greatest salesman of salvation and that by efficient organization the overhead of spiritual regeneration may be kept down to an unprecedented rock-bottom basis he has converted over two hundred thousand lost and priceless souls 
at an average cost of less than ten dollars a head. Of the larger cities of the land, only Zenith had hesitated to submit its vices to Mike Mundy and his expert reclamation corps. The more enterprising organizations of the city had voted to invite him. Mr. George F. Babbitt had once praised him in a speech at the Boosters Club. But there was opposition from certain Episcopalian and Congregationalist ministers, those renegades whom Mr. Mundy so finely called a bunch of gospel-pushers, with dishwater instead of blood, a gang of squealers that need more dust on their knees of the pants and more hair on their skinny old chests. This opposition had been crushed when the Secretary of the Chamber of Commerce had reported to a committee of manufacturers that in every city he had appeared, Mr. Mundy had turned the minds of workmen from wages and hours to higher things, and thus averted strikes. He was immediately invited. An expense fund of $40,000 had been underwritten. Out on the county fairgrounds, a Mike Mundy tabernacle had been erected to seat 15,000 people. In it, the prophet was at this moment concluding his message. There are a lot of smart college professors and tea-guzzling slobs in this burg that say I'm a roughneck and a never-wazer, and my knowledge of history is not yet. Oh, there's a gang of woolly-whiskered book-lice that think they know more than Almighty God and prefer a lot of Hun science and smutty German criticism to the straight and simple word of God. Oh, there's a swell bunch of Lizzie boys and lemon-suckers and pie-faces and infidels and beer-bloated scribblers that love to fire off their filthy mouths and yep that Mike Mundy is vulgar and full of mush. Those pups are saying now that I hog the gospel show, that I'm in it for the coin. Well, now listen, folks. I'm going to give those birds a chance. They can stand up here and tell me to my face that I'm a galoot and a liar and a hick. Only if they do, if they do, don't faint with surprise if some of them as rum-dumb liars get one good swift poke from Mike, with all the kick of God's flaming righteousness behind the wallop. Well, come on, folks. Who says it? Who says Mike Mundy is a four-flush and a yahoo? Huh? I didn't see anybody standing up. Well, there you are. Now I guess the folks in this town will quit listening to all the coyoting from behind the fence. I guess you'll quit listening to the guys that pan and roast and kick and beef and vomit out filthy atheism. And all of you come in with every grain of pep and reverence you got and boost all together for Jesus Christ and his everlasting mercy and tenderness. At that moment, Senka Doan, the radical lawyer, and Dr. Kurt Yakovich, the histologist, whose report on the destruction of epithelial cells under radium had made the name of Zenith, known in Munich, Prague, and Rome, were talking in Doan's library. Zenith's a city with gigantic power, gigantic buildings, gigantic machines, gigantic transportation, meditated Doan. I hate your city. It has standardized all the beauty out of life. It is one big railroad station with all the people taking tickets for the best cemeteries, Dr. Yavich said placidly. Doan roused. I'm hanged if it is. You make me sick, Kurt, with your perpetual whine about standardization. Don't you suppose any other nation is standardized? Is anything more standardized than England, with every house that can afford it? 
having the same muffins at the same tea hour and every retired general going to exactly the same even song at the same greystone church with a square tower and every golfing prig in harris tweed saying right you are to every other prosperous ass yet i love england and for standardization look at the sidewalk cafes in france and the love-making in italy standardization is excellent per se when i buy an ingleshall watch or a ford i get a better tool for less money and i know precisely what i'm getting and that leaves me more time and energy to be individual in and i remember once in london i saw a picture of an american suburb in a toothpaste ad on the back of the saturday evening post an elm-lined snowy street of these new houses georgian some of them or with low raking roofs the kind of street you'd find here in zenith say in floral heights open trees grass and i was homesick there's no other country in the world that has such pleasant homes and i don't care if they are standardized it's a corking standard no what i fight in zenith is standardization of thought and of course the traditions of competition the real villains of the piece are the clean kind industrious family men who use every known brand of trickery and cruelty to ensure the prosperity of their cubs the worst thing about these fellows is that they're so good and their work at least so intelligent you can't hate them properly and yet their standardized minds are the enemy then this boasting sneakingly i have a notion that zenith is a better place to live in than manchester or glasgow or lyons or berlin or turin it is not and i have lived in most of them demurred dr yavitch well matter of taste personally i prefer a city with a future so unknown that it excites my imagination but what i particularly want you said dr yavitch are a middle road liberal and you haven't the slightest idea of what you want i being a revolutionist know exactly what i want and what i want now is a drink six at that moment in zenith jake offutt the politician and henry t thompson were in conference offutt suggested the thing to do is get your fool son-in-law babbitt to put it over he's one of those patriotic guys when he grabs a piece of property for the gang he makes it look like we were dying of love for the dear people and i do love to buy respectability reasonable wonder how long we can keep it up hank we're safe as long as the good little boys like georgie babbitt and all the nice respectable label readers think you and me are rugged patriots there's swell picking for an honest politician here hank a whole city working to provide cigars and fried chickens and dried martinis for us and rallying to our banner with indignation oh fierce indignation whenever some squealer like this fellow seneca doan comes along honest hank a smart codger like me ought to be ashamed of himself if he didn't milk cattle like them when they come around mooing for it but the traction gang can't get away with grand larceny like it used to i wonder when hank i wish we could fix some way to run this fellow seneca doan out of town it's him or us at that moment in zenith three hundred and forty or fifty thousand ordinary people were asleep a vast unpenetrated shadow in the slum beyond the railroad track a young man who for six months had sought work turned on the gas and killed himself and his wife at that moment lloyd malum the poet owner of the haffetts bookshop 
was finishing a rondeau to show how diverting was life amid the feuds of medieval Florence, but how dull it was in so obvious a place as Zenith. And at that moment George F. Babbitt turned ponderously in bed, the last turn, signifying that he'd had enough of this worried business of falling asleep, and was about it in earnest. Instantly he was in the magic dream. He was somewhere among unknown people who laughed at him. He slipped away, ran down the path of a midnight garden, and at the gate the fairy child was waiting. Her dear and tranquil hand caressed his cheek. He was gallant and wise and well-beloved. Warm ivory were her arms, and beyond perilous moors the brave sea glittered. End of chapter 7